to Nicola. Okay, so good morning, everybody. Lovely to see so many wonderful faces and places as ever. Welcome, academic archers, fellows, old and new. Um, I am just going to mute you. There we go. And then speakers, if you can unmute yourself when you come on to play. Um, as ever, two amazing papers for us today. And we'll do a paper and then some Q&A, a paper and then some Q&A. Uh, I've muted all of your microphones, so please keep yourselves on mute unless you want to, unless we come to you to ask a question. And you can also, of course, ask questions and post comments in the chat. You have amazing chat in that chat space. It's fantastic. Um, and Nicola and I try and keep up with it as fast as we can. If you want to ask a question as well, you'll see in your little Zoom dashboard, wherever it may be, on your phone or your iPad, you can raise a hand um, and that should pop your screen in front of me so I can see that you're asking a question. Um, and the speakers will share their screens with you. Nothing that you need to do on that or just change what you see. We do have some sound on this week's uh, one of these talks um, so pop your volume up for that just to make sure you can hear it um, but now over to Nicola. I, am, I, can, am I making noise? You are making noise. Oh yippee. Right so this morning we have two absolute veterans of academic archers and if we believed in hierarchies, which we definitely don't, they are honorary professors of the University of Felpersham and staunch supporters of Cora and I since the very early days. Both Helen and Catherine are serial offenders as regards their papers and absolute stalwarts, not only in terms of giving papers, but of trailing across the country and world with offers of volunteering support and hugs. The only year Helen did not present was in Sheffield, and she remains our most decorated author, as well as by now a much-loved friend. We couldn't go on without your support, ladies. In a change to our advertised schedule, Helen Burroughs is flying solo this morning with her wonderful paper on transformative fan dumpty dumpty dum, which heavily features the labour of love that is the archer's cardigan. However, it would be remiss of me not to catalogue the wide range of topics upon which Helen has delighted us over the years. The first year was a piece on using the archers for teaching social work, an everyday story of dysfunctional families, using the archers in social work education, which was absolutely brilliant. Then she moved to work with Lou Gillies, and this was the paper we were going to have, but Lou is in a boot camp to get her PhD finally finished. The thing, the thing that links those papers and some of Helen's other interests are the, um, we've talked about it recently, a sense of general unease about how the agencies of the state appear in the archers. We quite often say, Christ for modern slavery. I mean, you can, you can barely buy a thing online without the modern slavery statement flashing up or um, midwives and coercive control. I mean, they are so um, hot on it that, you know, the questions can seem rather obtrusive if you're not used to what they're sort of trying to get at. So, so um, all that sort of social work stuff, of course, is all about a way of um, finding a norm and, and then if people deviate from that norm. So 
You know, we, we like a bit of Bourdieu in academic arches. And what Bourdieu describes is that the state increasingly has got two hands. It has the right and left hands. And that's not right and left as in Tories or Labour, but it does sort of fall out that way. So I'm, I'm, going, to read, I'm going to read you a quote. So exploring social suffering, we encounter many people who are caught in the contradictions of the social world, which are experienced in the form of personal dramas. Faced with the contradictions, which are the extreme case, are experienced by social workers, counselors, youth leaders, rank and file magistrates, and increasingly teachers. They constitute what I call, I, Pierre Bourdieu, the left hand of the state, a set of agents of the so-called spending ministries, which are the trace within the state of the social struggles of the past. They are opposed to the right hand of the state, the technocrats of the Ministry of Finance. Um, the key is that the left hand of the state has the sense that the right hand no longer knows or cares what the left hand does. And in any case, they do not want to pay for it. You can see all this playing out in our current situation, in fact. So in some senses, the most profound articulation of the difference between kind of a neoliberalized market forces within the, within the public service and then the civil and public service ethos and value ascribed to our key workers. But I digress. Helen has also served as more playful papers. The British Library security arrangements had to include how her Morris troupe could access the auditorium safely, for example, and who could forget their standard, which was raised that she so cleverly crafted. It is in this vein she appears this morning, exploring the craft side. But let us be under no illusion that one's crafting of a narrative around one's archersness is not something that's as important as all that neoliberalization of the state stuff that I just said there was a really close connection. We wrote in Custard, uh, Carlbots and Cake, that fandom and creativity are closely aligned. And I would like to just situate this paper, I am gonna shut up in a sec, sorry, I got, got all excited about what you're doing, Helen as part of the fandom gift economy. So Tasha Turk, a feminist scholar of fandom, has, has described the gift economy because it's based not on money or explicit exchanges of goods or services, but on giving, receiving and reciprocating. She argues the process of gift exchange is part of what makes it possible to experience and analyze fandom as a community or rather an overlapping series of communities rather than just a large shifting number of people occupying the same affinity space. I would argue that we are demonstrating that with this, right? This is, this is the space that we're in right now. In fandom, Tasha Turk argues the most valued gifts are those which take time and or skill to create. The value of those gifts then lies not simply in the content, nor in the social gesture of giving, but in the labor that went into their creation. So when we say that academic arts is a labour of love, I think it's very much in this reciprocal kind of context. So I, I, I could go on, well, I won't, but um, uh, Helen's amazing conscious creation of works of craft as well as of narrative, it's, an, it's a profoundly transgressive and interesting thing to look at in its own right and places her somewhere, you know, the geek hierarchy I've talked about previously and we'll talk about again. She's basically a queen of the geek hierarchy, I think. So anyway, um, I pass over after all those, uh, all those uh, effusive compliments and big chunks of quote to Helen Burroughs. 
Thank you very much, Nicola. Right, I'm going to try and share my screen now. Um, so hang on, I've not done this before, just to make sure I get it right. Share computer sound. That's fine. Uh, where's it gone? There we go. There we go. Okay, so since the first conference in 2016, I've been thinking more and more about the way that we as fans interact with the archers and with each other, and the possible impact of all this on openings for informal education. But what I want to look at today is at archers related behaviour and creativity through the lens of transformative fandom, which effectively works with source material to reflect the fans' desires and interests. I'll focus on a small number of examples to demonstrate the transformative process. In other fan groups, such as those related to Harry Potter or Doctor Who, a myriad of artifacts, fan fiction and cosplay, which is character costumes, can be seen online and at conventions. With an audio drama such as The Archers, everyone's mental images are different. So while physical fan artifacts exist, they're relatively few. And though there's much fan writing, only a small amount of actual fan fiction appears to exist. Yet the creativity that can be seen around the archers is huge. I also want to look at the identity of the academic archers and its role and impact as a fan forum and more. So, fandom is about cult media. And the Archers fits the definition of cult media in that it draws a niche audience, it has nostalgia appeal and represents subculture. Like other cult media, it has multiple active communities of people who identify as fans. However, it's also part of wider British culture, recognisable to and even referenced by many who wouldn't count themselves as fans. For example, a number of parodies exist, from Tony Hancock's The Bowmans, uh, to The Killing of Sister George, which referenced the death of Grace Archer in 1955. The Wainwrights on Radio 4 in 2013 was a play which was based on what might happen if a resident of somewhere like Ambridge actually heard the broadcasts of their life that we hear. And Ned Sheeran produced a short 1973 film called The Cobblers, Cobblers of Umbridge. And on a more serious note, the BBC Persian service took the format of the Archers in 1994 to create a daily radio drama in Afghanistan as an educative tool, in line with the Archers' original remit. In fact, two dramas were created, one called New Home, New Life, and another set between Afghanistan and Pakistan called Across the Border. John Finnemore's souvenir programme has parodied the Archers with its recurring The Archers Accidentally sketches, these claim to portray the archers the way it sounds to people who only listen to the show inadvertently. The radio series of Dead Ringers has frequently parodied characters from the archers, including special editions. If the BBC, as has been suggested, is a central agent of national culture through the cyclical production year in, year out of an orderly, regular progression of festivities, rituals and celebrations, then the Archers, with its everyday representation of the cycle of the rural year, may be seen as a central national cultural icon. 
Certainly Billy Connolly thought so, suggesting in his act that the theme was so typically British that it should be the national anthem of the United Kingdom. The theme was also included in the section of the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics in a section celebrating British culture when it was heard during the tuning in of a radio. And Stephen Fry chose it as one of his Desert Island discs. Jim Maxwell, an Australian cricket commentator, referred to the Archers during Test Match Special uh, last year as a BBC institution on a par with the shipping forecast. At the Reading conference, I was made aware of a third radio production in Afghanistan based on the Archers. Joe Nicholson, a naval reservist and linguist posted to Helmand province, was tasked as a communications engagement officer to write something to persuade farmers to grow something other than poppies for opium. With a farming background but no radio experience, he put together Crops and the Farmer on Radio Tamadoon. With a version of Barwick Green performed by traditional Pashtun musicians, 28 episodes were made, and I'd love to play you, if it will work, um, a clip of this. So you'll hear a blast of Barwick Green and then the, uh, the Afghani version. <laughs> Thank you to Joe for um, providing me with that. A local agricultural student who worked at the radio station produced the episodes, which were two-handers between a young farmer, Torgul, and Kodaidad, a wise elder. Using metaphor-based storytelling based on Aesop and the Mullah Nasruddin stories, Torgul is educated to understand the different farming issues he needs to be thinking about. Each episode lasted around 10 minutes and was followed by a 20-minute phone-in, an invaluable forum for farmers to discuss their problems and innovations where social media was not available and in a community where most would be illiterate. No, no, sorry, sorry. The BBC has, of course, itself licensed many products related to the archers, a small library worth of books, from the Archers of Ambridge, written by Geoffrey Webb, an original scriptwriter in the 1950s, to the academic Archers books themselves, to Archers Addicts Merchandise and Simon Drew's wonderful and punning drawings. Other products that have been on general sale include ceramics, cards and calendars referencing the Archers, and two of my favourites, Unheard of Ambridge by Merrily Harper, where the silence of Ambridge are given a voice, and the Bonzo Dog Doodars band's cover of the 1930s song Jollity Farm, which ends with a short burst of Barwick Green. Ambridge has also found itself referenced on stage, 
For example, Sonny Ormond, who plays Lillian Bellamy in Jane James's acclaimed Dorothy, The Airings of an Archer's Actor's Aunt, and a recent pantomime production of Robin Hood, where the call went up, bring on the archers, only for Barwick Green to be played while the cast did a country dance. So, to move on to fan activity, it may be useful here to introduce some of the terms used in discussing fandom and the study of which is sometimes is referred to as fanthropology. So ACA fans and fan scholars, as far as I understand it, and the terms are much debated, fan scholars are academics who study fans and fandom. Fan scholars, with a hyphen, with a hyphen, which is important, are those academics who overlap fan and academic analyses. Fans, in other words, who produce their own critical accounts of the fandom subject. An ACA fan is an academic who identifies as a fan. Some authorities suggest that their primary identity is academic analysis of their fan subject. Some disagree with this, that there's overlap as within um, fan hyphen scholars. These terms are, however, generally used within the context of fan studies. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how you identify us as academics and fans whose primary interest here is in the arches, but discussing it in the context of many different academic disciplines. Fan production refers to both material and media content creation, which may be made for a fan's own enjoyment, but is likely to be shared with others. Affirmative fandom refers to fanish behaviour that demonstrates how much one likes the fan subject. So, joining a fan club, buying merchandise, discussing the subject, going to conventions to meet actors and authors. This may involve fan production in mimetic form, for example, a knitted replica of Doctor Who's scarf, but that generally relates to visual media. Transformative or transformational fandom refers to activities such as fan art, fan handicrafting or fan fiction that takes source material and transforms it through a creative pr process into something original, reflecting the fans' desires and interests. Whole fan communities exist around this. Archives of production can be found. Transformational fandom can be seen, as Nicola mentioned earlier really, um, as conferring subcultural status within the fandom, as well as cultural status as owning skills in the method of production. And it often involves learning new skills. And finally, meta. Meta is another term about which there's a lot of debate. It's usually used to describe the analysis of a show, its characters or its fandom. Fan Law Wiki suggests that such analysis on fan forums is almost academic in nature, citing multiple resources and defending their point of view. Another definition is fandom talking about itself or its interests in a thoughtful way. It can also be used as a blanket term to include theories and character analysis. And however you read it, I think these conferences and online meetings are pretty meta in anyone's terms. So looking at some great transformational fan activities, uh, activity. Up to 2016 we were able to enjoy a visual commentary on Ambridge from the Plarchers, Ambridge Synthetics on Twitter, and I thought this was a particularly poignant example at the time of um, Joe Grundy having recently passed. 
Our conferences have also enjoyed some great examples of individual creativity. Last year saw Nick Maxfield's Ambridge Quilt. We've been covered widely by the Ambridge Observer. And this year we had the uh, esteemed Dum De Dum team join us. And the conference is, of course, in itself, as are these Saturdays, major, major pieces of collaborative fan productivity. But I'll come back to that later. By far the most common pieces of fan productivity, however, are the written ones. These range from discussions on message boards, Facebook, and other internet groups and pages, to collections of poems and songs, fan fiction, and academic papers. These are just two examples of skillful parodies about the archers. Pippa Williams' version of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen is a wry and funny tribute to all the goings on in Ambridge around Christmas 2018. From Lily and Russ to Tom and Natasha, Brian's problems, well worth searching out on the Archers Appreciation Group on Facebook. Barbara Williams's version of Coleridge's Kubla Khan or A Vision from a Dream, a Fragment, comes from her book, Ambridge Exposed, Jottings from Borchester Asylum, where Ambridge becomes the inspiration of numerous parodies of well-known poetry and song. Both of these were presented for fan group consumption. Um, Borchester Asylum is an offshoot of the Archers Anarchists. Describing herself as a fil filk singer, which is a fandom term for singer-songwriters inspired by cult material and who share their work in a variety of fan forums, Talis Kimberley is a long-term on and off fan of the Archers. This was not on a fan forum, but discussion on Facebook of a substitute national anthem. Thinking of Billy Connolly's suggestion of the Archers theme, Talis, who is also a Green Party activist, wrote this. Did those feet in ancient times walk on England's landscape? Was the holy lamb in these pleasant pastures seen? Did we build Jerusalem among the darkling mills? Spot the countenance divine between the clouded hills? Instrumental, instrumental. Bring my bow of burning gold, bring my shield and arrows, while we watch the clouds unfold, chariots of fire, till we build Jerusalem, whatever that may mean. I will not give up the fight to keep our England green. So to move on to some other writings, um, rewriting of classic literature has been going on since at least the time of Homer's epics. And in 2018, David Gutteridge on Archer's Appreciation on Facebook was inspired by Linda's production of the Canterbury Tales. An English graduate with a long time interest in medieval history and literature, he wrote the first couple at the time of the Ambridge production and posted them between an Archer's rehearsals episode and the 8pm news, keeping them very topical for the group. These went down very well, so he carried on throwing in cheeky comments on the various characters and effectively chronicling the ongoing stories in Ambridge. The tales are divided, as Chaucer's were, into short pieces highlighting a particular character. So we have the Lower Loxley tale about the Halloween disaster, the Apprentice's tale, Johnny, the Scholar's tale, Jim of course, the Matriarch's tale, Peggy, the blacksmith's wife's tale, Alice, the keeper's tale, Will, and so on. 
there's a final writer's tale as a farewell in the traditional style. David explains that he just chose to write about a few of the regular characters and to chuck in a few ludicrous plot developments. The work looks and sounds very Chaucerian, for David includes some authentic vocabulary, as well as much more contemporary slang, wanting to keep them accessible, as well as making them look almost authentic. They're quite bawdy in places, in accord with some of the more raucous Canterbury tales, like The Miller and the Merchant, etc. So, four days after our conference in Sheffield, probably inspired by seeing Nick Maxfield's marvellous quilt, I woke up with an idea for a complicated fair isle knitting design that I wanted to make into a cardigan. Two weeks later, I found myself in hospital with torn tendons in my shoulder, which put me out of action from my normal activities and meant that unable to do anything with my left arm, I could still use my computer, so I went to work on the pattern. This meant learning a lot of new skills, a common experience in transformative fandom creative production. It was a fascinating process mentally, as well as in terms of the actual design and creation of the pattern. Like David with the Borchester Tales, I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. For example, using generally only two colours in any one row, being knitted on the, in the round on circular or double pointed needles. And this created some design challenges. For example, a sweater knitted in the round is fairly simple, but a cardigan requires the knitting to be cut up the front and binding bands knitted on, and that's a very scary thing to do. Then there was the question of what I should put in and what I should leave off it. I specifically wanted names and places in traditional littered lettering, but the yarn choice meant that these were bigger than I'd imagined they'd be, taking up a greater part of the design. Luckily, the software I used, which is Stitch Fiddle, allows for copying and pasting groups of stitches in a chart. So making changes and alterations to fit everything equally in the rows was relatively straightforward, if time consuming. A couple of weeks later, able to knit again, I got on with it. It took me a total of four months to complete. The sleeves are not how I originally planned, for I thought there would be much more room for words I'd originally wanted to name the former residents of the village, such as Walter Gabriel, Phil, Dan and Doris, the voices I'd grown up with as a child. So it was with some regret that I left these off. However, the sleeve design developed a life of its own. I couldn't omit Helen's stabby knife, as the Helen and Rob story had got me involved with academic arches in the first place. And strangely, I ended up uh, knitting Will's shotgun whilst listening to him firing it through Poppy's bedroom ceiling. The sleeves ended up as a part of the, a celebration of the good and the bad in the village, and probably the parts I love the best. And to bring this section on fan production up to date, I'd like to mention the impact of the coronavirus lockdown. There has of course been much discussion, which I won't enter into here, of the way the pandemic might have been addressed in Ambridge. What is clear, however, is that lockdown has changed behaviour in quite radical ways and has given some new opportunities for creative thinking and action, particularly participatory fandom. Chad Bourne suggests that participation in a fan interest may also provide fans a means of escape from the stresses of everyday life. And various writers have explored how increasing 
digital advances are influencing the nature of fan communities. Without lockdown, I doubt that we would have the Saturday Omnibus, which for me and I suspect many participants has become the highlight of the week. And in addition, fan fiction has had a slight upturn. More entries have been made to the Archers section of Archive of Our Own in April alone than in any year since it started. One piece of Ambridge fan fiction that has used digital advances to the full has been the Alternative Archers. Written and coordinated by Jonathan Brown, a playwright and artistic director of the Something Underground Theatre Company, three episodes have been produced, each one presenting what might have happened after the final episode of the week for the past three weeks. He was prompted to do this after reading all the comments and story suggestions on Facebook through the lockdown, and in truly participative style, wanted fans to take control of the story rather than being mere passive consumers. Parts in the first episode were recorded individually by the actors from his script. Actors, I say, fans, people on Facebook. And he then fa faced the mammoth task of editing these all into a relatively seamless piece to post on SoundCloud. For the second and third episodes, auditions, rehearsals and recording were all carried out over Zoom making editing a simpler process. All three episodes are linked on the Academic Archers website, uh, Facebook page. This again has been a process that has involved skill development and does rather raise the question that if a whole 15 minute drama can be produced in this way, could not the BBC have used similar technology to carry on through the pandemic? So metafandom, are we the classroom of the future? Booth posits that fan spaces can be considered as a space and a culture that may be one of the few places where people are encouraged to think critically, to write, and to make thoughtful and critical judgments about hegemonic culture. I think this describes us perfectly. I would like to suggest that the academic archers inhabits a possibly unique space in fandom where members can be described as ACA fans who are fan scholars, but not necessarily scholars of fandom itself, and which spreads transformative fandom and critical thinking wider into public culture. This brings new insights to our audiences and readers, better understanding of some of the issues about rural life that we have addressed over the years which according to a number of people I've spoken to has enhanced their enjoyment of the arches, as well as generally increasing their own knowledge. We've been directly responsible for inspiring people to take up higher education, including at least one student at Oxford, or continue studies that they had abandoned. And I can certainly vouch for having had my own academic confidence restored after years of self-doubt. And I think it's also worth mentioning that academic arches brings to meta something which can at times be missing in other platforms for fan discourse, an inclusive community where experts by experience have parity with academics and where on the whole discourse is civilised and respectful. There may be spats on the Facebook page, but far fewer than any other site I've visited. And finally, I was very pleased when we were at the British Library to meet Nancy Henderson, 
who drew this wonderful cartoon of the first Academic Arches Conference in 2016. Fan creativity with fan creativity as its subject, a lovely way to create a full circle. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, um, Helen. It's, it's just, it's lovely. It's quite, um, it's quite moving actually to hear yeah. us talk about in that way. Um, Nicola, if you can unmute yourself as well, and we can go. One question that did come up, Helen, was um, what was the yarn that you used for your cardigan? <laughs> oh, very cheap double knitting. There you go. Fine. <laughs> it was whatever I got left. Hanging around. <laughs> so, what I love about this paper is that. What I oh there it is oh amazing. What I really love about this paper is that we we've really risked talking and thinking about you know the fandom panel in Reading for example. Had we gone so meta that we'd gone up our own backsides. Do we find ourselves more interesting and fascinating than everybody else? But there really is something in it about show me what you love, show me what you make. This is so much more than pass, you know, passive acceptance of something that's in the mass media. And that's the germ of what I think, Helen, you're right, is this the classroom of the future? If we've got, so, you know, I, I, we talk about this all the time, but the first academic archers. You know, we laughed all day and then I went to our big set piece conference in Oxford and I was bored and cold and pissed off and miserable and I said to Cara well you know I mean it can't ever be like academic archers because it's only about the future of humanity and the planet and how we want to open it and I just thought for god's sake we just we've massively missed the trick and I think that this you're right like it puts back the emotion and the feeling and the camaraderie all the things that academia tries to sort of shed, you know, the train, the shedding bit um, is rather too effective, really. And I think that putting all that stuff back together again, there really is a, th yeah, you're right, Annie Madison Warren just said, and the fun. There isn't very much that's fun about, f you know, you're drawn to research because you are curious. But then you seem to spend the sort of performance of that curiosity becomes so elite and boring and dry almost it's like the love that dare not speak its name is how much fun it is to find stuff out and by putting the fun the curious joyful and generous like right at the front of what we do I think that's what it is transgressive right we're all extremely highly educated slightly mad women and we've got things to say about things basically and this is what this space is fueled by and some men, Nicola, of course. So, we, we, yeah. are, we, we, we allow... Hi, Gary! Hi, Hi, Hello, Gary! Gary. <laughs> Hi, There's so many of you, we can name you yeah, <laughs> Ray and Hi, Jim. Jim. <laughs> Jonathan. Ah, Jonathan, a man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we don't discriminate. We do allow men to join us occasionally, but there is something very... There is something performatively non, you know, all the list of things. It's, you know, the, it, by being inclusive, we don't assume that the academic subject is the 
cisgendered male, able-bodied, etc. We don't we don't assume that at all. Sorry to run again. Anybody got any more direct questions? Rachel Daniels is saying lockdown might bring much more fun and informality to meetings and conferences. So do you think that this Zoom thing by in and of itself makes the formality fall away a bit? Only if you invite a goat, says Annie. Thank you, Annie, for that. <laughs> oh, I love the idea of goat. Can we have a, can we have an archer's academics goat? We're never again doing anything to do with goats after that disgusting kefir. <laughs> I think um, there are some people in the chat as well saying about how active archers fans have been through lockdown, and I think that speaks to the fact that there's a there is a feeling of us being a community. And communities rally round um but it's been also just um there's a sort of a measure of engagement in that as well isn't there and i was thinking through that conversation too around um at our first conference we had um a very upstanding academic start their talk with you know and you would never hear this in a you know, in quote marks, usual, normal academic conference. Then they stood up and said, I'm a novice in the room. I've only been listening for 15 years. Mm -hmm. There is no way in any other academic setting somebody would say, I'm a novice because I've only been doing this for 15 years. And it's one of the reasons why we said that everybody that's part of the academic arts community is a research fellow. Because, and that's one of the reasons why we ask, we put the paper going around every year to see how many years listening are in the room because of the body of knowledge that we have as a fan group is absolutely incredible um and, and not to be dismissed really Aficionado. a bit pretentious though <laughs> <laughs> i mean um jez has done work on you know his whole stuff about um you know why why you don't listen or why you don't define yourself as a fan this is an interesting question right what's the what's the you know do, so who's the wrong sort of listener dusty substances on dumpty dum there were also there's a really funny relationship between you know in the in normal fandom you've got canon and then you've got fanfic and there's quite a clear divide you know as in what gets what's in the film or whatever is the thing and then everything else is a response to the thing but then the blurring of all of Intriguing. Oh, hang on. You've, you muted me, Cara. No, it's okay. Like, so, so I think that, the, and that is such an interesting space between, so in some of the fan sort of literature, there's the stuff about showrunner fans and, but the, and, and, the, and in Claire Asbury is saying that Dumpty Dum is a, is transformative fandom. The tweet along, I would argue, is transformative fandom because it's all quite, it's all very active. And I think there was a thing in the early so mustard land and the early engagement of the beeb and then they literally shit themselves it wasn't just that they were cut they they kind of panicked about the loss of control of the spaces but i don't think anyone pretends that anyone's got any control over the fandom spaces now which is kind of partly why we sort of struggle with our sort of you know the rule bound nature of the group because we will not have people be rude to each other but they can be completely rude about the archers so some people get a bit carried away the that in and of itself, the canon itself, and particularly with this scenario now, as so somebody said, 
Kerry has written his best scripts and he's gutted that he can't, they can't be recorded and they can't go out because he had some really funny comedy in there. But someone was like, oh, is it just a script or was it recorded? So that notion of what the, orig what the version is anyway is kind of disrupted by reality in this case. What does Sarah reflect? How does, how does everyone feel about tomorrow's tweet along of the archive episodes omnibus and how will they string the episodes together? Well, there's been not a lot, has there? It's been, they've been quite, I find it quite unsatisfying because it, the actual wedding, for example, it's all the flaming lead up and quite a few newbies have also said like, what's the, it, without the context, it's not really, the, I mean, it's nice to hear Kathy and Joe, but it, I don't know, it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a, a it's suboptimal, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I've not been listening, actually. Even for Kirsty's wedding, where I just loved that scream and I got so much pleasure from that. Uh, I didn't even tune into that. I mean, I, I'll be gardening tomorrow morning, so I'll probably have the omnibus on. But actually, I've, I've kind of stepped back from the active listening part of being a fan of, uh, of the archers because of that, that omnibus. And, I, you know, the, the episodes they've chosen, I don't think are some of the great. So I've kind of... Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? The hiatus. Gary says he's not listening either. Now, this question about so, so this is an interesting one. So, Sarah Playfair, for example, she's very active on the tweet along. Who would say that they were a sort of tweet alonger first? I suppose, like, like the. Well, obviously, we found one another kind of through. Well, maybe this isn't meaningful distinction, but the tweet along has got a different vibe, certainly to the group. The group's got a different vibe to the Zoom. The Zoom's got a different vibe to the conference. This and we've just this has been something that we've just tried to navigate and keep it the way it felt right to us. But sometimes I'm much more in the mood for Twitter than I am at other times because it can get very shark infested in Twitter if you're not careful. What, it's, um, what, uh, it moves very fast as well, doesn't it? So yeah, it's, it's very fast moving. Yeah. Witty and insightful to say. They've moved on, and by the time you try to. Uh, Type that out. Well, that's my experience with my back fingers when I'm trying to type. Um, Rachel Daniel says something really interesting in that that she's quite enjoying them because it's the power of hindsight. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Rachel? Yeah, good idea. Um, yeah, just because you're listening to it with so much more knowledge, so that when you've got this real pathos when Emma and Ed are getting married because you know they've got this total struggle ahead of them, but you know we just know that. They've come through it. So it's amazing to look back. But I think that only works if you've heard, heard it originally, I think. So people new to it, they probably won't get that. But it's that whole history and everything they're going to go through. And I have to admit that really stupidly, in the first episode that they played, um, when, oh gosh, which was the first one that they did? The first wedding. Um, um, but when Joe just appeared, I was just like, mm. oh my God, and I was just like, Whoa. yeah, it was Ed and Emma's. It was Ed and Emma's, was it? Um, yeah, just just beautiful. So the ability to go back and listen to it again, and again, like, you, you, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting for that horrific. Uh, I, I didn't like it at all, Cara, when, when, when Kirsty cries. It's just so horrible just to feel to be in that position to be let down just at the last minute. Uh, so publicly as well and 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 it could have been avoided I think uh, just yeah it just really chilling yeah so I've actually yeah really enjoyed them I I was hoping that we'd go for 
I know we always talk about this, but just a fortnight of the heyday of Mrs. Antrobus and Nelson Gabriel and having just a kind of normal fortnight. I thought that's what they were going to do. And then I was a bit like, oh, good point from Claire here. Do we think the BBC has done us a favour by putting it on hiatus and it's unleashed a lot of creativity to fill the gap? <laughs> it's a really good point. I do think we should have a... Um an academic archers, uh, art show at the end of it of all the work that you've been working on, all of your knitting and crocheting and everything that you're doing and weaving there Ruth, um, and put that onto Facebook. I've created a little space for that. You know, I've already got an art show there, everything that we've, we've done. On Can that. it be curated by Russ? <laughs> I'm going to play my take card and say no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you're the arbiter of taste. Interesting, Gary says that their blog, which is really active and is another space, mm -hmm. another with a different tone, it's been quiet on the Archer's side since the repeats, but the non-Archer side's been far busier. So I guess it's that thing about reaching out, but not. And Sarah Playfair, despite being a stalwart of the tweet along, she's saying that she's not really been tweeting with the hiatus because it is sort of... Yeah, sometimes I can't face the tweet along at all and sometimes I really get into it and when I get into it then I come top of that pole that they do and I feel like a stab of pride and then wonder what I'm doing with my life basically. <laughs> um, it's, people have been talking about the conference as well so I'm one for the time so we should move on. Thank you very much Ellen, oh, amazing as ever and we should move on to Catherine in a moment there too but uh, Nicola and I have been talking about the conference for next year and we'll let news on that out when it's just a little bit more ready and also um, actually let me just while um while she's on Nell, Nell can you say something so you come up as speaking you still there Nell oh maybe not my assistant is on and she's going to be helping to do some of the work around that I can't see her actually she was on a minute ago oh that, Nell oh she's wandered off Nelly can you introduce yourself, Pat? Unmute yourself first. Or can you unmute Nell Wimpany, Cara? Oh, oh, it's not coming up. Hello. Hello. Sorry about that. Someone phoned for my mother, so I had to give her the phone. <laughs> That's all right. I'm just <laughs> saying, we're just talking about the next conference, which obviously you've mm -hmm. been talking about. So this is Nell. Nell's going to be helping as an editorial assistant on the next book. So if you're... We, there will be communications this week coming out about chapters in the next book. And this is Nell Wimpany, so this is the person who you will be dealing with. Hello! Hi. I was also going to say as well, there's, um, we, and some of you know this anyway, there's uh, Emerald also won a book from us, which is for a more academic audience about our fandom and about the way that some of us have worked with the Arches in our teaching and learning and research. Um, so those papers that were in a conference this year are obvious contenders from that, consider yourself accepted. There's been some really interesting chat as well to think about what the lockdown has done and maybe some updates on some of that as well. But I'm putting together a call for papers for that. So there's some really good ideas in the chat about certain topics for papers and chapters and things like that. So all of that news about the books and about the next conference will be coming all happening <laughs> thanks Nell. You can okay get should we go on to Catherine yeah Nicola 
I didn't write as much for Catherine. I, I included her in the stalwart part at the beginning. The things that Catherine has written, I mean, for, to start with, I think Catherine is our furthest um, contributor. She comes the furthest every year. And I couldn't remember Catherine. You joined us from Lincoln onwards, is that right? No, I was at the first one. I've been to all you of You were them. at the first one too. How did you hear about the first one? I can't remember. Oh, I, well, I, I don't know how I heard about it, but I, it came up on Facebook or something or other. And um, I was visiting Britain because my cousins had their wedding anniversary. Yeah. So I was actually there for the wedding anniversary and the Arches was the weekend before. Amazing. Yeah. I, this is a really interesting point. I mean, having said that, that you guys have become friends of ours, the question is, how did we all get together in the first place? And also, did we really aggressively filter out people that didn't get us immediately? <laughs> like, anyway, sorry, darling. Um, so having written in previously about the, the role of New Zealand in the Archers, this is an absolutely hilarious point. So like, you know, Birmingham is where you go if you want to be a bit naughty or you have an autistic child. But New Zealand is where you go if there's not a lot of chance of you ever coming back. As well, the moment, that's certainly did. true. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but um, the archers used to be transmitted in New Zealand, but because it, they stopped doing it, they, they wrote an alternative extra end. So this is like a nice link to the, um, the Afghan stuff from Helen, is that you know, there isn't just one version of this. There is an alternative ending out there where the archers pack up and go home. Well, life in Ambridge continues. Yeah, yeah it certainly does. Right, today, uh, Catherine has for us, I am woman, hear me roar, and now watch me play cricket. Right, so I'll show the slides in a second or two. Um, this sounds like a very... Um, um, critical feminist kind of title, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. It comes from the Helen Reddy song of the 1970s, which was almost an anthem for the empowerment of women. And in 2017, which is now a few years ago, there was women roared into the Ambridge cricket team, not because they were inherently wanted, but because there was a shortage of men. Uh, the whole story though doesn't have a particularly critical feminist flavor to it it has a very much interpretive flavor flavor which is a stance that a number of academics like to take and with an interpretive flavor you're trying to look at the perspective of everybody involved in the story from their perspective without judging them and that at times was quite interesting and now i'll share the screen and put it onto Right. So this was first presented in 2018, and it's just been revised fairly recently because there have been some updates. So what I'm just going to go through is a little bit of background. I'm not going to go through the background to the same detail that I did at the conference. What were the key events in Ambridge that led to the women coming into the team? And the selection, admission and integration of women in the team, the perspective of the coach, the key women and the men, and the issues involved, and then what's happened since 2018. So this is some of the background that sport for centuries has had a practice of gender-based organisation, and that is very much now questioned. It's questioned in terms of whether it's appropriate. 
um, and it, it's now generally not, there's a lot of questioning of this. But the men's sport is the mainstay. So we talk about the Cricket World Cup and the Women's Cricket World Cup in, and the Rugby World Cup and the Women's Rugby World Cup. And it's really strange in cricket because the Women's Cricket World Cup predates the men's. So there is no reason for it to be the, the men, the, the Cricket World Cup and the Women's Cricket World Cup. Although in cricket, that is changing more quickly than it is in other sport. And I'll talk about that when I talk about post-2018. The women's cricket team in England and Wales, and it's called the English team, even though it's England and Wales, has had a long and very successful history. It has won the English Women's Cricket World Cup, or the Cricket World Cup, on four occasions. And at the time that I gave this presentation, the men were yet to do that. They have subsequently, and they managed to do it controversially, but never mind about that. Yet women's cricket is still marginalised. It's better than it was in 2018. And it's increasing in profile, but it's still marginalised. Now, I could spend about 10 minutes talking about each of these points. But I think what would be better, rather than my talk about these things now, it would be better if you went and had a look at the chapter in the book. Um, that's a little plug for the book, because there is a chapter about this in the book. And it goes into all of those points in quite a lot of detail, where I got the evidence from and um, explaining in more detail uh, the differentiation by gender. But also a couple of other key points is that there is a difference between women in cricket and women's cricket. In Ambridge, we have women in cricket, where women could be playing, are playing with men, whereas women's cricket is where there are only women playing against other women. And Ambridge is very much talking about women in cricket. In England, for quite some time, even by 2018, gender exclusion from clubs was not acceptable. It hadn't been acceptable for some time. So in a way, the story in Ambridge was a little bit behind the times. Many of the mergers or the allowing of women into sports clubs, though, happened for pragmatic reasons rather than because women were inherently wanted or because people believed that it was the right thing to do. Quite a lot of mergers occurred because membership was falling and men's and women's clubs got together because of that. So there's quite a lot of conflict, unlike the last paper where everything was about collegiality. When you start to talk about the Ambridge cricket team, we start to talk about conflict. So what happened in the immediate lead up to the story? The story in Ambridge occurred at the beginning of 2018. In the edit lead-up, the England's women's cricket team had had a lot of success. So the English women's cricket team had had a high profile. The lead-up to the story, though, or the conflict, came from golf. In 2014, the St Andrews Golf Club admitted women, uh, somewhat controversially. There had been high profile about this because two years later, the women's changing facilities were still causing controversy. When the women were admitted to the St Andrews Golf Club, their changing facilities weren't put in the iconic building that is known as the St Andrews Golf Club. They were put in a separate building out of the way. 
Now, they may well have ended up with better facilities as a result because they were in a much more modern building than this old iconic building, but the men were in the old iconic building and the women were sort of out the back, as it were. And the media profile over the conflict over the changing facilities was quite high. And this is often one of the major problems when clubs first admit women is where on earth are they going to change? The changing facilities are often not well geared for that. The Muirfield Golf Club in 2016 had still declined to take women. And they only changed their mind partway through 2017 because a number of tournaments were withdrawn from them. So in the lead up to the Ambridge cricket story, there was a lot of high profile golf media coverage about the admission of women. And in lots of ways, the Ambridge story parallels this. Complete coincidence that Rachel Hayhoe Flint, who was a leading advocate for women's cricket, passed away at the beginning of 2017. Um, what was 2017 that the story occurred? Uh, the story would have been well underway by the time she died, but it was in a way quite a fitting tribute to her that something like this occurred, that the, the Ambridge cricket team admitted women shortly after she died. So what was the story? Uh, now you might have difficulty remembering it because it was a couple of years ago. So Harrison was the captain of the team and he had difficulty fielding an all-male team. So he single-handedly decided that the team needed women. He went to a general meeting and the general meeting said no and they turned the idea down quite dramatically. So he went away, he represented the, the idea, but he had to manipulate the decision. He talked about an email from another club uh, a neighbouring club, and the possibility of mergers and all sorts of things like that. He fundamentally lied, um, but he manipulated the decision. Against the possibility of a takeover from another club, the men did decide to admit women, so women were admitted to the team. Then Harrison got into trouble because he went and invited specific women to try out for the team. He invited women that he thought would be interested. Women in Ambridge grumbled about the way in which Harrison had used this invitation process. They thought he was being ageist because he appeared to have only invited young women. So he then backtracked. He allowed more women to try out. So players were then selected to play after he'd, based on whether they came to practices. Some of the men didn't come to practices because the women were causing such havoc at practice, and a very talented young man, Will Grundy, missed out on being selected for a particular match, and he grumbled, and he grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. The changing rooms caused havoc because all they could do was put a blanket down the middle of the room, and the men changed on one side of the blanket, and the women changed on the other side of the blanket. Tracy Horriban caused embarrassment when she kept asking Anisha what Rex was like in the sack. And Rex, of course, was on the other side of the blanket, on the other side of the, the um, and I don't know whether the fact that they were using a blanket um, was a sort of symbolic um, kind of, uh, to, was symbolic in terms of the conversation. But in a sense, 
And it's always dangerous to attribute different types of conversations to men and women. The kind of conversation that Tracy was having in the changing room is the kind of conversation that is more normally attributed to male sports people than to female ones. Tracy had no difficulty asking Anisha all sorts of quite personal questions about her love life or sex life. So what happened with the women? Harrison had invited people that he thought would be interested. He didn't necessarily think about talent initially. He asked people he thought would be interested. He asked Anisha, he asked Usha, and he asked Lily. And he was right, those people were interested. He didn't ask Susan, and she wasn't interested. But she was really annoyed that she had about the way in which Harrison had only invited the young women. Then when it came to trying people out, Usha was interested, but in her own words, she was rubbish. She had no talent. Anisha was both interested and talented, as was Lily. Susan was absolutely brilliant. And she had no hesitation in telling Harrison that she wasn't interested once she had proved her point. And Usha actually represents one of the most difficult situations for a coach like Harrison. He's an untrained coach. He's doing it out of the goodness of his heart. And he's trying to deal with people who could be interested but not talented. Very, very difficult situation for a coach. And it's the untrained coaches at village cricket that are often having to deal with the situation. That's not to do with gender, so I didn't. So what perspectives occurred? Well, Harrison, as the coach, was stressed. It didn't seem to matter what he did, no one was happy. He did have the best interests of the team at heart. But he just couldn't get anything right in most people's eyes, in a lot of people's eyes. When he went to select people for matches, he based it on attendance at nets, at the practice. He negotiated difficulties at almost everything. And this poor chap um, hadn't wanted to be the captain in the first place. Uh, he was doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He was a volunteer. The women were initially excited, but they were offended by the way Harrison went about it. And when they did have when they did join the team, they were successful and they highlighted their success and they had no hesitation in bragging about it. The men were divided on almost everything. Some of the men were critical of Harrison and some understood him. Some of the men were annoyed about the way he selected people for matches. Others understood it. Some of them, um, but they were never united in the way that the women were. They were divided all the way through. So two issues, once the women had got into the team, two issues that normally in most villages would have carried on sitting as an underlying problem for a couple of years were, were conveniently removed, probably because they had to move on to other storylines. Um, Harrison Harrison's lying was found out and Will Grundy was going to create a lot of problems for him. However, Carolyn died. And when Carolyn died, um, Will just decided it wasn't worth fussing about. And then there was a donation from, um, oh, what's her name? Um, Peggy's friend. Um, she donated the money for changing facilities for the women. 
And so, um, Christine, Christine donated the uh, money for the changing facilities. And so these two issues were conveniently removed from women, by, the, by women. So what's happened to, since 2018? Quickly emerges from time to time. Typically when somebody says they're going off to nets, um, or when there's a discussion about matches against other villages. And sometimes the team is successful and sometimes the team isn't. The men's, in, the men's English team won the Cricket World Cup for the first time in 2019. And the initial media report was England wins Cricket World Cup for the first time until it was clearly pointed out that this was the men's team that had won for the first time. The women had already run, won four times. But now, both in England, Australia, and New Zealand, there is much greater use of the term men's cricket. And we're starting, it's still not happening in rugby, it's not happening in soccer, it's not happening in other sports. But the, particularly in England, people are starting to talk about men's cricket when they're talking in the media, partly because of this rather controversial win. Most recently, we have seen some conflict between Tracy Horobin and the captain, and a little bit between Tracy and Jolene. Tracy is an incredibly competitive player, and Harrison just wants to keep the team happy and wants to be inclusive. And so between Tracy and Harrison, we are seeing the issue, what's important, is winning important or being an inclusive cricket team? Now, it's always dangerous, I think, to attribute attributes solely to one gender or another, but it has happened in literature over quite a long time. And generally, competitiveness is attributed to men and the more conciliatory approach is attributed to women. And Tracy and Harrison, in that respect, are the other way around. Tracy is showing the competitiveness that is often attributed to men. So women can, of course, be competitive. Um, it's, it's not a fair attribution, but that's the way literature has often uh, shown men and women. So there are gender issues even in this conflict. And Tracy has actually given but Jolene a bit of a hard time. Tracy doesn't believe that Jolene has sufficient talent to be in the team. And she organised a practice and she really was trying to get the women um, and men up to speed. So what's my prediction? Um, well, I think it's fairly obvious that tracing, Tracy is egging on to be the captain of the team. Um, I think that's fairly clear that that's where she wants to be. Will she get there? I think she possibly will. Will she get there in a calm and conciliatory way or will she get there through some kind of overturning or will she get there in some, with some kind of controversy? I think that's probably more than likely. Um, certainly, I think we can expect to hear more from her. And if she does become captain of the team, the team will be a very, very different team to the one that Ambridge has seen for the past, in the past. So this was predominantly a gender issue paper. And it was taken from an interpretive approach, trying to look at the perspective of the men, the women, and Harrison, and to look at the pros and cons of all of their actions. And you can read more about it in here. Thank you very much. This really got the chat going. Oh my gosh. Uh, wonderfully gendered uh, conversation happening here. Really fantastic.
Um, are you there, Nicola? You've disappeared from my screen. Oh, yes. Good heavens. There you are. Hello. Oh, and there's Andy Murray. Yes, of course, that comment about Andy Murray. He's been brilliant about this kind of thing. Exactly. Mm. I think, I yeah. think so, so the first thing I would like to ask is, it really does depend on the function of the cricket team, doesn't it? The yep. So something that came up in the chat quite a bit is how um, they often do the switcheroo, don't they? So as you say, the testosterone fueled win at all costs has been afforded to, tra to Tracy rather than to Harrison while he's being kind of Mr. Nice Guy. Mm. Um, but is it an afternoon out and the tease are the thing, or do they mm. want to be a competitive side? And I don't know if that, what anyone thinks about it. You know, I, I did sort of think really until Tracy has shaken things up slightly, is that it was a way to get away from the misses kind of thing. It's had that mm. sort of extremely amateurish sort mm. of um, taint about it to the point where, you know, the, the, the team's always losing. Um, so that maybe that's the question in a way, is, is it, and, and um, somebody put in there about sport for the enthusiastic rather than the competitive. You see that in a lot of the, this girl can um, sort of narratives. It's just getting sweaty and getting out there rather than being good at anything is kind of good for health and well-being. But then it's, oh. you know, the point is, is that they're, um, Oh God, I forgot Sid was a captain. Well done, Sally. That's a good that made me laugh as well. My dad was a fantastic uh, village cricket player and did a little bit for Somerset as well. And uh, the cricket team and the focus on homophobia. My dad happily shagged his way around the whole of the cricket team. <laughs> Not that many other people knew that. <laughs> no surprise. You find the um, history of the, oh, I can't see the history of the cricket team in this little book. Um, mm -hmm. Quite a number of people have been um, have been captains. Of, of the cricket team and some of them have been a bit more aggressive than others mm. Mm. but Tracy is certainly being more aggressive probably than any player has ever been in the past although Rob mm. was pretty aggressive Rob appeared and yes. Rob was quite keen to shake the team up and of course Rob had some pretty underhand tactics um, when he was playing but we don't want to talk about him do we? but that's the whole thing isn't it it's like are they in it to win it or are they mm. in it to get mm. out of the house and I think that this is mm. the so, you know, when you look at sort of change in either uh, government or in big companies, it's like when you've got a problem, you're very happy to hire diversity. But when you go back to the default, you go for, you know, the, the white man in the suit kind of thing. And I think this is what's being played out here. That the creative team doesn't know what it is. No. So if she manages to displace Harrison, it'll be to be a much more aggressive... Mm. But the thing is, they couldn't get a team together. Why was that? Was that because it was just a, um, a time waster or a time spender? Or, I don't know, it, I, I, think they need to, I think that's the core of it. They need to work out if they want to be competitive or not. Well, the, uh, they should actually, um, sorry, Catherine, carry on. They should actually already know that because most cricket teams would actually have a constitution. They would be member-owned club. And the constitution should actually state what the purpose of the team is. And they should have some kind of link or affiliation to some kind of cricket hierarchy. And they, the purpose of the team should actually already be known. 
there is a huge gap though isn't there in the archers of what they should have (laughs) what they should do and what they actually do have and don't do and all of that Sarah Playfair in an act of beautiful nominative determinism you spoke brilliantly about the ethics and practices of coaching could you say a little bit about that (laughs) Uh, well yes because at the coaching session with Lee Tracy actually deliberately asked Lee to be really fierce with everybody yeah. Uh, and he was vile. He gave them a real beasting. Sorry, I typed yes. and I wrote blasting instead of beasting. Yeah. He gave them a real beasting while Tracy sat by with her feet up yes. watching the whole thing. Amazing. Yes, it was mean, awful. What team is going to vote for her as a captain if that's the way she behaves? It's so interesting because well, I, I always imagine her as like in her sort of slightly shiny Primark trackie, but getting into it. But it's, interesting, it's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you give somebody a megaphone and, you know, that's a huge amount of power that goes to their head as well. So So I guess linking to to the flour and produce paper that we had last week, how does one define one's onions in the terms of the Ambridge cricket team? (laughs) What's the etiquette which underpins the rules? I mean, Kirsty, Tracy was in a strong position because she understood all the rules of cricket and was able to then pass on that knowledge but this isn't about knowing the rules this is about knowing your onions how would Mm. one one's cricketing onions in a box sorry that's a cricketing joke there that only cricketing people will know nice little bit of uh of chav hatred here her leggings would be very stretched and too revealing (laughs) i i think tracy's quite spelt actually that's my really? question of, of Tracy. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, definitely a, a, a sort of juicy couture knockoff tracksuit for sure. Can I just point out though, Harrison is Harrison is a terrible residual character in terms of like so Royfield had a rant on Dumpty Dum about what is the point of Roy the other day, which was music to my ears, because ever since the rest of the Tuckers went, he's just fe- he just feels like he's like a residual character. Harrison, you know, sometimes He's well when he's arresting um, Freddie in a Spice Girls outfit. What 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 is the point of Harrison? Can anybody explain? He's like a nice guy, kind of wants a family, wants a quiet life, wants the village idyll, loves the Smiths. Like I I don't know. I think they just kind of throw it a whole bunch of stuff at the wall with Harrison. I don't really. Although I completely am. Like almost obsessively sexually attracted to John Cart, to Jay Carty, oh, right? Who plays yeah, that's him? That's one purpose of Harrison. Absolutely. Absolutely, the sexiest man alive. But um, oh, I, think, I think he's heartbeat in Embridge. I mean, it's 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 where heartbeat comes into Embridge. The the you know, the, the village Bobby in heartbeat in Yorkshire. Right. He's in Embridge. He's a bit of a sort of um. He's he's used as a bit of a kind of incidental character. I love yes. it, Jonathan Hustler. He's no Dave Barry. Put into <laughs> him, and and he's wheeled out for that. But um, yeah, not great past that. Susie Lloyd, you had some really good points there around class and intersectionality, and what Tracy's permitted or not permitted to do. You, I, I can't see you on my screen. So if you want to unmute yourself and and say about that, if you so wish. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, I haven't got my picture up because I'm sitting in my dressing gown and nobody needs to see that on a Saturday morning. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I was just kind of thinking about, you know, often what happens with Tracy, I feel, is really dictated by the idea that she's representative of the working class in Ambridge. And um, and I wonder how much of what she she does in the cricket team and how much of the sledging and how much of her kind of aggressive and competitiveness is really only permitted. And I and I use that word sort of consciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really only permitted because of her her representation as working class. Mm. But this comes back to the space evacuated by Susan as she, as her sort of lust for social mobility has kind of worked to an extent. However, that Tracy's sort of both new and kind of quite vexed, um, both class and, um, I guess, that, I mean, the function of Tracy is, is, to be quite transgressive in a sense, isn't she? But you're right. Like there's a there's there's a massive class element that's sort of you know core to all of that. Yeah, and that kind of the sledging and uh, as a working class woman, she can be brusque and aggressive in that way. Would they give hmm. back to another character in quite the same way? Yeah. I guess also, I I think it's so as well as like is the point of the team to win or lose. The position of cricket within English society, and I say English advisedly, is weird, right? So, so from the one hand, there's sort of all the MCC kind of real, this is a, a private kind of game, but I've never been so scared in my life as going to see Lancashire play because they start at midday. It was deliberately set that way kind of for factory people to go en masse and those snakes of beer cups that they pass around everybody is so loaded as in like 20 pints in by five o'clock i've like literally never been so scared in my life i went on a works do and it was like it was horrific jonathan hustler hates to tilt the gender balance but he's got to go it's an outrage in fact we are be we are beetling on so um yes gary says the point of the cricket team is to have fun no. wow <laughs> in which case, in which case, then Tracy needs to wind her neck in, and if yes, she wants I think to go and play something else somewhere, go and play a, a solo sport, because the team is never going to be what she wants it to be, maybe. But why doesn't Harrison say that to her? But I suppose, in a sense, because he's having difficulty feeling a team, he wants to keep her on side. But in fact, if he was doing what was right for Tracy, he would be pointing her in the direction of a really competitive team. Squash. <laughs> I think it was Lucy on Dumpty Dum said this, but um, good God, if they can't win a match, what are they doing when there's literally only four other villages in the league here? <laughs> <laughs> They're really doing something very, very wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, and this, this is the core of it, right, is that um, Gary says it's to have fun. I mean, cricket is of limited fun, which is why you would probably need to seduce the whole squad if one was playing um, a la your dad, Cara. But, like, it's... And, and Rachel Daniels, is it fun to constantly lose? And we know that both Rachel and Annie are the most competitive, aggressive and avaricious people of all time, since they see no joy in the, the providing of perfectly innocent vegetables without it having a weaponized competitiveness in the flower and produce mm. context so you know yeah. how can the flower and produce show be more competitive than the organized sport 
that that maybe that's why that, that's the irony of village life that the flower and produce show is more competitive. I mean, someone's asked the question, uh, somebody made, made the comment, would, would the cricket team actually vote for Tracy when she was so nasty to them? They may not have a choice because Harrison became coach because there was nobody else. And if Harrison decides to move on and no one else wants to be coach, then Tracy will just go straight on in. And you have the likes of Will that would want, want to win. Yeah, and... and, and that completely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Adam doesn't. I mean, the conversation she had with Adam, he wasn't completely against what she was saying. He was saying... Which is what I said in the chat, is that, you know, if, if even, like, torpid Adam is kind of, oh, maybe she's got a point, then, yeah. you know... Oh, yes, the single wicket tends to be quite competitive, but, again, that's a solo sport. This isn't a team. Yes. Yeah. Maybe it is and the like the Kyle and Janssen paper about... Um, and about morality and that's the interesting thing they've had women in the solo in the single wicket for quite a while always because yeah. brenda brenda tucker actually won it once yeah and then Pip, when you know when she's just handed off uh, the kid to another babysitter she'll go and pay for that one as well won't she yeah. <laughs> if harrison ran the produce show death by dull chutney <laughs> You do. You have you have more fierce leadership in that flower and produce show than you do the sports team. Absolutely. Well, here we are. So we've yes. ranged widely, and the um, <laughs> Will as a captain threatening everyone with a shotgun. I'd listen. Says Gary. I would. Well. I mean, we've been saved that episode that we're obviously building up to of where Jolene as the twelfth player comes in to save the day. We're going to. We'll have to assume. That, that has happened or whether they are saving that up for us that's a little treat when we come back good god also remember there was another another transgression which was um rob um bowling to henry mm. with a hard cricket ball mm. as a demonstration that he was a sadist masochist whatever he was i remember mm. all that my, with my granddad and my cousins and spinning and not spinning and all that stuff i mean cricket is yeah, it can be a con it can be a blood sport. <laughs> mm. oh, there was also the um, there was also the whole thing about Rob um, was actually technically out, but it was highly quite oh yes, those lies. And Helen had actually managed to record it on her camera, and he managed to wipe the tape so that it couldn't mm. be seen later. Oh, okay, so who knew, who thought that from the jumping off point of knitting and cricket? We could have covered every angle to do with intersectional gender superiority. Um, what is the point of the cricket team? You know, we started one place and ended up somewhere else. That's been a thoroughly enjoyable hour and a it's half. It's been fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Your comments has ever been amazing. Annie Madison Warren, you are on fire. Also, have you seen her? She's looking really cool in sunglasses. <laughs> I particularly love Annie? the comments. She like um, Snoopy when he's Joe Cool. The cricket balls, the, the the metaphor of the cricket ball. I think that's a very li nice comment. Mm. <laughs> right. Love, love you all. Stay safe. Thank you all. We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.